Hello and welcome to this episode of the John Henry Weston Show, where I'm very pleased to introduce you to an old friend. This is someone who, when I started off in the pro-life movement way back in the uh, 90s, there was a fellow there working in the office of Campaign Life Coalition, the premier pro-life group in Canada, and he was always working very studiously, very um, diligently, and he always had a crucifix on his desk. And I noticed that uh, a very devout man, and uh, quite a few years later, I wasn't surprised to learn that uh, he became a Catholic priest. He's got some incredible things to tell us, also about lockdowns. So you're going to want to stay tuned. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. Father, if you wouldn't mind leading us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father Louis DiRocco, it is so good to have you on this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. I'm glad to be with you. I remember when I first met you in the, in the office, as you said, you know, right? And, uh, well, you've you come a long way since then. <laughs> I congratulate you for all your good work. Thank you, Father. Why don't we start off um, letting everybody know a little bit about yourself and uh, your your uh, quite incredible journey uh, from the uh, heart of the pro-life movement to, uh, to the priesthood. Well, I was a teacher most of my life uh, from the age of about 22 until uh, I was, uh, you know, in my uh, almost, uh, well, 1992 is when I stopped teaching. I, li- I liked teaching very much. But I had become involved as a volunteer in the pro-life movement, uh, more around the middle of 85, I would say. And uh, and then I started to get more and more involved. And I realized that at some point that I would have to make a decision, either teaching or, you know, full time or not, not, uh, not get being so involved because my teaching was starting to suffer, you know, so I. So I decided that um, I would go full-time with, with the pro-life work because I, th- I considered that to be more important. So I gave up teaching. And uh, at first, I, I went half-time, and then eventually I went full-time with Camping Life Coalition. And I basically was an organizer for them. You know, I did many things. I lobbied politicians. I organized life chains. Uh, I uh, went to talk to politicians at uh, Queen's Park, you know, in Ottawa, many different things, you know, anyway, and uh, taking part in uh, also um, uh, Operation Rescue. I was arrested five times, but was never charged, though. (laughs) I don't know how that happened, but thank God. (laughs) Oh, um. You know, I'm, I'm, and my my main interests are things like uh, writing music. I write a lot of liturgical music, mostly masses, you know, in Latin. And I used to play the guitar, and I took singing lessons, and um, I like to cook as well. I'm Italian. I'm not Italian for nothing, you know. All right, does that, does that give you enough information about me? <laughs> That's great, Father. One of the things that uh, I found very interesting. You're just uh, sort of newly retired. And uh, we were talking the other day and you had mentioned, you know, about the lockdowns and, uh, and a regret that you had. Um, if you could tell us about that, start off. As a priest, 
the main thing that you we need to do as priests and you know people in the hierarchy and every single priest is that we have to uphold the truth justice and and the right to life what jesus said you know be not afraid be not afraid and uh, these lockdowns came as a as a great shock to everybody and um, uh, and in my opinion, they were totally unnecessary. They were draconian and based on the untruths and fallacies. And I think they were deliberately created to create fear and panic. And that was obvious. I tried to allay the fear, you know, and the panic. Uh, and I thought people, I was being reasonable. You know, I told them, for example, you know, this is something serious, but it's not the bubonic plague, you know. But you could see that the fear was palpable. For example, some people would come up for communion, not that many, but they would they would deliberately stay as far away from me as possible and and extend their arm as as far as possible to receive Holy Communion. I I found that shocking, but I didn't I didn't, you know, say anything to them, but I, I did not overly uh, zealously insist on things like sanitizing the pews, you know, I just said, here's a wipe, you know, just sanitize the place where you were, you know, right. And we saved a lot of money that way. I, and I never wore a mask. I told them right from the very beginning, I said, you know, you have to decide for yourself. I'm not going to force anybody to wear a mask. I'm not going to force anybody not to wear a mask. You, as you can see, I'm not wearing a mask. Why is that? Well, because I'm a priest and I'm celebrating mass and I find it repugnant and grotesque for a priest to wear a mask while celebrating mass. And so I ne I've never done that. Never. And I, I still refuse to do it. I've been, I've done funerals in, the, in, other, in other dioceses, and I told the priest in advance, it's, you know, I won't wear a mask. So if you want me to just sit in the corner or whatever, you know, want me to do, that's fine. But, you know, he allowed me to give the homily and participate in the mass. The main regret that I have is that, you know, I, I cooperated in the, in participating in the lockdown, the actual locking of the doors, you know, of the church. And uh, I, I was very angry and frustrated about that. But some people advised me that it would be the better thing just to, to cooperate, you know, at least at the beginning, you know, at the first lockdown. Mm -hmm. But I think, frankly, now, if I told the people in my last homily, on, on my last Sunday homily, I told my, my parishioners, if I had to do it over again, I would defy the edict. I wouldn't do it because it's our responsibility to provide mass for the people and to provide the other sacraments as well. And the, the, uh, the government has no authority over what the church does, you know, in celebrating the worship of God and over the sacraments. They have absolutely no authority. We should have told them where to go. <laughs> well, politely, <laughs> I would say, but you know, that's, that's my, my main regret. And uh, I made that very clear. And I said from, from the pulpit. And we, another thing we, you know, I wish I'd emphasized uh, some other things, maybe perhaps a little bit more. This is not just a health issue. You know, it affects our basic freedoms in our very lives, the right to be responsible for our health, the, the right to worship God or the, to receive the sacraments, the, the right to make a living, you know, to socialize, to see our relatives, uh, to be with friends, uh, you know, to, to treat our children properly. I think what's happening now is criminal, what, what they're doing to children, you know. I mean, yesterday I, I, I saw a little video where the police were guarding this place in Toronto where they were offering ice cream to kids 
to, to be vaccinated. Well, I hate the word vaccinated because they're not vaccines, right? We'll, we'll, we'll call them injections or jabs, right? I hate the word vac- vaccine because they aren't vaccines. And there were some people there, you know, trying to get in and the police wouldn't let them in. You know, they were using kind of profane language at the police, but <laughs> they were making their point, you know, right? But can you imagine offering ice cream to entice children to be to, to be jabbed by this? I mean, you know, first of all, it's almost impossible for them to, to get the virus in the first place, right? Or to die from it. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, why are they doing this? You know, what's, what's the motivation, right? Because it can't be medical. Another thing which is obvious is the effects on society, you know, which was pointed out very early by certain doctors and, and others, that it, this is leading to health problems, uh, all kinds of problems like loneliness, depression, abuse, uh, marital problems, increased alcoholism, increased suicides, loss of life, even among children, the loss of livelihoods. How many businesses have been closed, especially restaurants, you know? Yeah. canceled surgeries how many people have died because they didn't get their surgery or because they were afraid to go to the hospital or see a doctor you know i even saw a video of uh of some music students i don't know where it was but they, they were all in a little tent with a little plastic window in the front of the tent like it, it couldn't have been more than about you know two or three feet wide you know and about four feet high and these kids were playing their musical instruments inside this tent I mean, who would do that to children in a school, you know? That, that's, that's ludicrous. Plus, there's also the question of the, um, the fact that these, um, these vaccines are, are made from the cell lines of uh, aborted children, right? And uh, even include sometimes DNA itself. Now, people claim that this is remote, remote uh, cooperation, but, but uh, even if it was only one child that was murdered in this way, you know, it would still be wrong, I think. Because plus it's not because they have to con- continually replenish this, right? Yeah. And so many hundreds, at least, of, of babies have been aborted just for this particular purpose. And so, you know, if we use the these particular injections, you know, then we're cooperating in that. And e- even if you take the stance that this is, um, you know, very remote cooperation, and it's necessary in extreme circumstances. It's it that doesn't apply because there's no reason for these, right? Ninety ninety nine point seven percent of the people, you know, are perfectly fine. It's the very elderly and those who have comorbidities. They're the ones who are dying, right? And there's a way to protect them, and you're not. You can't possibly protect every single person. You know, physical life is not the ultimate value of our lives, right? We, yeah. we do what we can, obviously, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't neglect anyone. But on the other hand, you lock down the whole world, you, you close all the churches, you know, you close all the schools, you put people out of business, for what? You have to ask yourself, what's the motivation behind this, right? And I, I can't believe that this is being done with, with, without, without, you know, forethought, you know, really, it, it just boggles the mind, you know. Plus, there are there are perfectly good means of treating the virus, you know, such as hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and other methods as well, which are very inexpensive and work very well. They're using them; they've been used for decades, and they're very safe in countries. In many countries, you can get them over the counter, right? Why are they suppressing these methods? Well, one one reason could be that in order to to get this whole thing uh, approved in the first place as an experimental drug. 
There have to be no other methods available. You see, if there are no other methods available, if there were, then they wouldn't be able to, to promote this as an experimental drug. See, they've never been approved uh, for, full, for full, full use. There's, in other words, they're using people like guinea pigs. <laughs> That's what they're doing, you know, to put it bluntly, right? So, you know, all, all these things are criminal, and there, and there are actual lawyers, you know, who are bringing lawsuits for crimes against humanity, for the people who are responsible for this. So those, those are some of the things that, that really, you know, bothers me a, a, a lot, you know, and I, I pointed some of these things out about a couple of months before I, I knew I, I was going to retire. I didn't know exactly when the bishop would accept my resignation, you know, so I said to myself, well, I better give him the full picture here. You know, I had hinted at certain things, you know, but then one day I said, oh, I'm going to tell him the whole truth here. You know, you know what this is leading up to? I said, you know, this it's got nothing to do with the mask. You know, it's leading up to mandatory vaccination. You know, that's what it's leading to. And you won't be able to do many things that you want to do, like go to the, to the concert or get on a plane, you know, or go to a restaurant, you know, the last example I said was, that I gave was, uh, oh, the police uh, come to, to my church and they say, Father Duraco, I understand you're letting people in the church, you know, uh, well, you know, we're going to have to fine you $100,000 and don't do it again or you'll go to jail. That was the last example that I gave. Now, some people stopped coming to my parish because I gave that homily. And, you know, letter, they wrote letters to the bishop as well, and I was called in, right? What would you say to priests who are still active but would face a kind of censure if they went down that road. Um, you know, what would your advice be to them? People have to understand, like, it's let's say you're a 40-year-old priest and you've done nothing be, besides being a priest all your life, you know? How much money would you have saved up, you know? How, how are you going to live, right? If you get bounced, you know, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a practical consideration. On the other hand, you know, we were ordained to, to tell the truth, and to to give the people the real food you know so i would say that you know we live in these times because we we exist because of god's will so that means we're meant to be living at this time right now you know god could have put us in another century but he didn't he put us he put us here right now and so we have to do what is right even though it, it may be costly for example you know the mask mandate if everybody tomorrow stopped wearing the mask, what would happen? My guess would be that they couldn't enforce it anymore, right? If everybody did it together, you know, right? What if, what if all the bishops of Canada said, uh, next Sunday, we're all going to celebrate mass and all our priests are going to celebrate mass at 11 a.m.? What would happen? And very similar, I think, to the situation of abortion that uh, you fought all your life. Um, because I think if uh, if all the bishops uh, also said, you know, uh, obviously you have to vote as a Catholic for the pro-life politician and uh, any pro-abortion Catholic, don't you dare present yourself for Holy Communion because you'll be refused. I think you'd also have, you would have had a very similar effect in that it would have totally changed the landscape. Um, and yet, uh, you know, we've we've gone for so long without without getting there. Well, I have preached uh, about politicians and I was ordered to, uh, to, to, to preach about certain things at one point. So what, what happened there? 
Well, you know, some people complained. They didn't like my homilies. Whenever, when did they complain? They, they only complained when I preached about things like abortion, euthanasia, contraception, and abortion, right? That's when they complained, right? Uh, and, you know, I was called in by, by various bishops. And you were ordered into silence, though? Yes, about those particular subjects. It re- removed that at a certain point, you know. But um, that happened, yes. We're right now dealing with, with Father Altman, who is just, uh, being, has just been asked to resign from his parish. Um, and it's from a bishop who, for a long time, uh, let him go. But I guess the pressure from other bishops has finally got to Bishop Callahan, and uh, he's just asked him to resign. So this has gone on all over the place, where good priests trying to do only what they're called to do by Christ, to feed the flock, who are really starving for the truths, especially these hard truths, um, get censured by their bishops. Um, and it, it's it's really, uh, you know, I, I didn't know about it at the time when, when, um, when you were silenced, but, you know, really does the faithful need to stand up for their priests, the priests who are actually feeding them, who are actually giving the truth. Uh, the faithful need to stand and take action. There are always some people who don't accept the church's teachings, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's face it. In the lack of catechesis for so long that, uh, you know, a lot of people simply don't know the faith, you know. Uh, that's, that's a reality. I mean, if you go into the schools, you know, go into a high school and ask them what the Ten Commandments are, I don't, I don't think you'll find a student that can tell you all ten. They might be able to say the Hail Mary and Our Father, but uh, they, they don't know their faith very well. And the same with the people in the pews. A lot of them don't know their faith very well. There are parishes where people are very supportive, you know. And there, there, were, there were many, I think most people were on my side, actually. But, um, you know, most people tend to be silent, though. That's the problem, you know. So I always used to tell them, if you want a better pastor, you know, pray for the one you have. (laughs) You know, pray for the one you have. I wanted to ask you, Father, about uh, an interesting perspective you might have based on your past. So you're trilingual. You are Italian by birth, I guess. And and of course, you live in Canada, so English. But you're also totally fluent in French. And I know you write and and read and, and speak in all three languages. Um, and this was very useful for the pro-life movement. Uh, you were sent as the first of uh, the Canadian uh, representatives from pro-life to the UN when John Paul II made the call for pro-life groups to get engaged with the UN to defend life, to defend the family. Uh, you were one of the first two people sent uh, in that in that whole thing. That must have given you a very interesting perspective on what was happening on the international scene, what was happening at the UN, and the kind of anti-life, anti-family agendas that they were pushing back then. When you see what's happened now in the world with regard to the push for those anti-life, anti-family policies, but also the new push for basically seeming like making a one-world government through the UN or, or involved in that kind of a thing... What what comes to you, or what what you know from your experiences? Uh, what do you see uh, in all of what we're going through right now, internationally speaking? This has obviously have been planned for a long time, and uh, it's, it's a constant thing. You know, I even said once from the pulpit that the UN is a, an evil organization, <laughs> which is the truth. You know, I saw it for my with my own eyes. You know, when I was at the the Cairo Conference on Population, it should have been called the Depopulation Conference, really. Uh, the Copenhagen summit on uh, what was it called on social development or something? Uh, the Beijing conference on women, 
that was really bad. Uh, the Istanbul Conference on Housing, there was a food summit in Rome, or even there, there were some, some objectionable things, you know, regarding abortion in there. They snuck some stuff in there. Would you believe this? The, the International Criminal Court uh, Conference in Rome in 98. I went to all of those, uh, those conferences as a representative of, uh, of a pro-life organization, you know. Uh, starting in 1994, you know, I, I read about what was going to happen at the, the Cairo conference. And I said to, to Jim, you know, I said, uh, somebody should go there, you know, <laughs> and that was the, the wrong thing to say. He said, <laughs> well, why don't you go? <laughs> so, you know, Gilles Grondin and myself were, were on a plane, you know, a few months later, right? So we went to Cairo. And that was uh, that was an interesting experience. Now in Cairo, there were a lot of pro-lifers there. Maybe about I would say guess 250, 300, and we had a we had a tremendous effect, you know. But we we caught them by surprise there because they weren't expecting us. But in, in further conferences, though, they they ramped up the uh, you know the uh, the dirty tricks you could you could call them right. They used to have all kinds of dirty tricks, you know. The most interesting uh, conversation or discussion that was ever I ever heard at the UN was at the Beijing PrepCom, the last preparatory meeting, you know, that is always held at the United Nations itself in New York. And they were talking about uh, a delegate from one of the little um, Latin American countries had, had asked that the word gender be square bracketed in the whole document. And there were hundreds of references to the word gender, you know, as such as gender equity, you know, et cetera. And there was a woman that called their Dale O'Leary who wrote a book later called The Gender Agenda, which is very good. And she had already studied this, this question of gender, you know, and she was warning and she wanted, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the Holy See to take this more seriously, right? There was a long discussion and every country put in their two cents. You know, most of the countries wanted to square bracket the, uh, the word gender in the whole document, which is unheard of, you know. <laughs> but the, finally, the chairwoman ruled, we will not square bracket the word gender because it will not move us forward. Oh, wow. It was crooked, in other words, right? <laughs> it was crooked. There are lots of examples of that kind of thing that went on at these conferences. For example, they would have a special committee set up. And then, you know, if you wanted to participate, you could go, right? But they would have it in a small room somewhere. And then, for example, the criminal um, International Criminal Court Conference, they, were, they wanted to try to legalize abortion everywhere in the world with the, word, with the expression forced pregnancy. What that meant was that if you, if you had laws in your country against abortion and you didn't allow abortion, then you were forcing a woman to be pregnant and therefore you had to change your law. That's, that's, that's the gist of it, right? And so they had a, a special committee formed and there were many, we, we lobbied, you know, the, uh, the various delegates of the good countries to go, to go to that meeting. So they canceled the meeting because they thought the room's too small. <laughs> so they canceled it. And then they had it later another day in a small little room somewhere which where nobody knew where it was and we we were running around telling the delegates where the where the meeting was you know right we had to find it ourselves first <laughs> you, you know there were all kinds of little dirty tricks like that getting back to what you asked you know you could you could see that 
they plant they plant things there. You know, for traditionally, what they would do is they would uh, set a precedent. They would get a word into a document, and then they would build on it in another in another document. For example, at the Beijing uh, conference in in Beijing, Canada, which was always bad at these conferences, by the way, they were always pushing the worst things. Right, Canada was one of the worst countries, hmm. always. Wow. It was a Canadian delegate who, for the first time, suggested, not suggested, uh, you know, proposed the word sexual orientation in a UN document. That was the first time it was ever proposed. It was, it was defeated. But you see, they were setting the precedent for the next time. You see, that's what they do. And they just build on what came before, right? And so... <clears throat> You know, we would we would lobby, for example, the uh, since we spoke both of us spoke French, we 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 went to a, a lot of French delegates, you know, from Africa, and they they agreed with everything we said, you know, but they would they would be silent at the microphone. So I said, how come these people never say anything, you know? <laughs> so, well, you know, if uh, think about it from their point of view, then you know they go back to their country and they say, yeah, yeah, we uh, we spoke against this, and they they say, oh, thank you very much for getting our foreign aid cut off from us, you know, right? <laughs> That's probably what was what was behind it, right? Right. I would imagine, but. Um, well, you know that's that's what they've been doing for years, right? But there were there were there were documents at these conferences from various organizations that were promoting one world government. You know, I mean, this this was out in the open, right? Yeah, they, they haven't haven't exactly hidden this agenda. You know, they're out in the open too. They say exactly what they want to do, right? It's it's not a secret. You know, people don't wake up soon. You know, it's going to be too late. And then there are all kinds of doctors warning about these injunctions and jabs, you know, that they're very dangerous. First of all, a lot of people are getting the infection after they get the injection, right? which is supposed to stop it, but it doesn't, right? Plus, a lot of people are dying within, within sometimes days, one or two days or a week or, or two weeks, you know. Like in the United States, I think it's up to 4,000 at least. But those are just the ones that are reported. There, there are probably, you know, Many, many, many more that aren't reported, and uh, in in Europe it's, it's at least ten thousand. That that was a few weeks ago, you know, and it's probably a lot more than that there too, right? So, isn't this significant? I mean, they they stopped certain vaccines in the past because five people died, fifteen thousand people die. Oh no, there's nothing to worry about, nothing to see here, you know. Just move on, right? Yeah, and that, that's a. You know, I, I can't believe it, you know, and people are lining up. They're coming from other countries, you know, to the United States to be to be jabbed. I, I, I don't understand it. You know, all I could tell you, I can even tell you more worse things, but I don't want to frighten people to death. You know, <laughs> the job is doing its, its job well enough in itself, you know, right, for that purpose. Father, just as as we close off here, I wanted to ask you what moved you from being such a, a valuable stalwart pro-life activist uh, into the, into the priesthood? Um, because I, I remember you as, you know, you were, you were already, you know, you were well-established in the pro-life movement as it were and uh, working away, but what actually moved you to the priesthood? Well, it was God, you know, I, I had the vocation right from when I was about 14 years old. I wanted to be a priest then. And I did go to the seminary when I was 18 years old. But I only stayed for one year, and I planned to go back, but, well, I didn't. And over the years, you know, I, 
I made attempts to uh, to to get to get married, but it never worked out. You know, <laughs> thank God. I say, <laughs> I tell the people in my parishes, God saved me. You know, <laughs> saved the women too, probably. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but then you know, it became obvious that He was calling me. Many things happened which seemed to be coincidences. When I lived in Toronto, I lived in a place where I could get to about six or seven different Catholic churches, you know, within 10 minutes. So sometimes, you know, if I went to one church on a Saturday, my own parish on a Saturday night, and I didn't want to hear the same homily again, I would go to a different church Sunday morning. And one time I went to one of these parishes and the priest, uh, he was an elderly priest and he preached about how he had gone to the seminary when he was 52 years old. Wow. I didn't go back to that parish for three months. The next time I went there, the same priest preached about how he went into the seminary when he was 52 years old. (laughs) And I was about 48 or 49 at the time, right? (laughs) I said, well, that's, that's amazing, you know, right? <laughs> That's amazing. When I was at one of these U- uh, UN conferences in New York, the, the last preparatory meeting, there were some people from France. And this woman from France kept, I only saw her that one time. <clears throat> she kept calling me mon père. You know, I was wearing a business suit, you know, with a tie and everything, right? That's what I did when I, when I was lobbying, right? You had to look decent, you know? Yeah. After a few times, I said to her, why, why are you calling me mon père? He said, well, you're a priest, aren't you? <laughs> I said, no, I'm not a priest. If I were a priest, I'd be wearing a collar. She says, oh, no, no, in France, that's the way they dress, you know. <laughs> I said, no, 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 in Canada, we, we wear a collar, you know. <laughs> and then and, and at, the same, at, the same, at the end of the same meeting, a, a friend of mine who lives in the United States, who I had lobbied with many times, you know, in various conferences, all of a sudden, he looks at me and he says, have you ever thought of becoming a priest? Hmm. I said, yes, but why do you ask me now? He says, I don't know. Well, I was talking to a man in Toronto, you know, Mike Delgrand. Yeah. When he, when he first ran his trust, right, he asked, he asked me to help him go to door to door. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And then we started talking about politics and things. And all of a sudden, he says, have you ever thought of becoming a priest? I said, I have, yes, but why do you ask me now? He says, I don't know. <laughs> and and there are more cases like this where it was just one after another, you know. Yeah. And the the the, the final one was I had gone to the Beijing conference, right? Niagara Right to Life had booked me to come and give a talk on the, the Beijing conference when I gave came back. So I went there and I gave the uh, I was seated at, at a table, it was a dinner, and there was another priest there, and he was elderly. And we got to talking, and, and then <laughs> he said, I went to the seminary when I was 59 years old, 59. <laughs> and I said, okay, God, I understand. <laughs> that is the exact moment. That is the exact moment when I said to God, okay, I'll go. <laughs> no, I'm serious. This is, I remember it like it was yesterday, you know, right? And uh, well, there are many other things that happened as well. So, but it was obvious, you know, he was calling me, right? Well, we thank you, Father, for uh, for your ministry, both uh, formerly in the pro life movement and then as an awesome priest. Thank you for being with us in this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. You're very welcome, and uh, continued uh, great work uh, for for uh, LifeSite. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Father. If you wouldn't mind giving us your blessing before before we leave, that would be awesome. So, may Almighty God bless you 
and LifeSite and all the people who work for you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father. God bless you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we are communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to LifeSiteNews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.